0: Buddhist Geeks, Seriously Buddhist, Seriously Geeky. Episode 189, The Tao of Twitter. We're joined this week by American Buddhist teacher Lama Surya Das to speak about the upsides and downsides of what he calls beaming streaming media. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. And I'm really excited today. I'm joined by Lama Surya Das. Lama Surya Das, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist geeks. You're like one of the biggest geeks out there. So it's great to have you on. Geek <laughs> you. And uh, just a little bit of introduction so people have a sense of your background and and kind of what you're bringing to the conversation. You're one of the foremost American lamas in the Buddhist tradition and you've helped bring Buddhism to the West in a really big way. You along with several other elder teachers, I really consider to be sort of the core elders of the Western Buddhism. Many people have probably heard of your books, too. Awakening the Buddha Within was one of your bestsellers. And then your most recent one is The Mind is Mightier Than the Sword, which is a pretty provocative title.
1: Thank you. I'm glad that you appreciate that.
0: You're also the founder of the Dzogchen Center and Dzogchen Retreats. And I remember hearing an interview with, that you did with Ken Wilber, and I was I was shocked to hear that you did nearly three three three-year retreats back to back to back. I just didn't know that you'd spent so much time on retreat as you're practicing with your first teacher.
1: Well, I guess I'm a slow learner. I was kind of a recidivist. (laughs) Nice. It took me a while to get to the point, but these days we have Twitter and the new media, so we should get enlightened faster. Don't you think so?
0: Yeah, I think enlightenment in 140 characters or less, right?
1: How long does it take to awaken anyway?
0: (laughs) Good question.
1: That's a real question.
0: Mm. So we wanted to talk today about new media. That's not all, but we want to talk about basically awakening and contemporary life. And part of that are things like Twitter and Facebook. And you wrote an article last year called The Tao of Twitter. And I wanted to read just a short little excerpt from it and then also jump into questions about it. You wrote that the Tao of Twitter is like a stand-up comedian's good one-liner, haiku poetry, and the old-fashioned singer telegram, rich with the magical power and incandescent immediacy of nowness, which is part and parcel of the power of Tao. This river of participatory being in touchness helps an increasing number to experience being part of an ongoing dialogue, side by side rather than top-down, Social network opportunities amplify and strengthen the possibility of virtual community and mass action today, whether for good or ill, time will tell. So this is a perspective I don't really hear many spiritual teachers taking, that these emerging technologies may actually have deep spiritual and practical benefit to humans, that dare we even say they have a strong spiritual component to them. You even go on further in the article to say that I believe technology is pure spirit, It is not just a tool, but can be a transformative force. Could you say a little bit more about this perspective, that technology isn't necessarily or automatically a hindrance and a problem to our spiritual lives?
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. And you read some nice words, I guess. I spent some time thinking about that and it came out well. But more off the cuff, let's just take a very prosaic example, Vincent, which everybody can understand and relate to. It's not very sophisticated, technological, or anything like that, is the printing press. That's basic technology. Don't we all agree that the universal literacy and the printing press and the advent of books and news and all helped – humanity develop and help bring about bring us out of the dark ages and the reformation and the age of reason and democracy that everybody could participate in and so on this is spiritual evolution at work and many of the things that i hear people saying about technology they said about the print the priests who were the pharisees of the time the status quo the catholic church in europe for example said uh, they didn't want the people to be able to read. They wanted to have control over the knowledge, the mathematics, the astronomy, the science of economics, the ability to balance the books, the Bible, the truth about heaven and, and earth and so on. And I think that that transformative technology was very crucial in bringing about a lot of evolution, worldly evolution, and also spiritual evolution to humanity. And similarly, just in my lifetime, which goes back almost to the time before television, I remember I used to listen to Brooklyn Dodger games with my grandfather on the radio in the early 1950s when I was a baby. There was television, but we didn't have it yet, then we got it. You know, people said, oh, television is going to be the end of books and reading and so on. didn't happen. Now, of course, and as an author, I am concerned about this, but still, I think this kind of learning is here to stay. And educational tools, television, film as an art, new media, telecommunications, telephone, in some ways, it's brought us closer. In other ways, maybe it keeps us apart. Nothing is perfect. Uh, Nothing is either black or white. It depends on how we use these tools and technologies. We could talk about many other examples, but I think that's a good example it's a little known fact, but book lovers and scholars and historians definitely agree with this. It was not the books that made the printing press and printers successful. Five hundred years ago. It was the ephemera. It was the one page, the short messages, the announcements that bread would be available on Saturday, that taxes would be collected, the indulgences that the church sold on one pages, that things that printers printed in the thousands are what kept printers in business, unlike Gutenberg who went out of business with his breakthrough Bible. So today we have ephemera like the blogosphere, the twitter sphere as I call it, which is not necessarily full of twits. <laughs> Although Twits are everywhere, and I'm a Twit too at times. But the Twittersphere, uh, these are ephemera. But as one of my editors, who's very clever, once pointed out, you think that your books are going to be in the libraries forever and people are going to find them there. It may be that because of things like Google, that the ephemera and the digitized versions of your work, the blogs, the articles, the essays, the YouTubes, are going to be available and accessed much more in the coming generations by hyperlinking through people's electronic devices. So I was very surprised that this has a very interesting educational and consciousness-raising knowledge-based net, Indra's net effect, where everything is instantly connected. People might not be going to libraries. Libraries might not even exist, who knows, to find my books or anthologies and my essays. Graduate students may not be doing that anymore. They may be Googling it or whatever it is, noodling it or boogling it in the next generation, and they may be finding things digitized much quicker and using those things. So I think there's an opportunity here for us to use the medium, just as it was used as an educational tool, to use it as a spiritual education for true higher education. Of course, as Martin McLuhan pointed out, who taught me about media in the 60s and all of us, the medium is also the message. So this very short and quick means of communicating also has its effects. So a short message also could imply a short attention span. It could entrain short attention span. Somebody said, we're losing our IQ through all of this instant messaging and simultaneous multitasking and texting and emailing and cell phoning. I don't know if that's been researched and proven yet, but uh, I can almost feel that because I feel like it scatters my attention, and attention is the essence. So I think there's the upside and the downside to this technology just like anything else. Today, Buddhist teachers, yoga teachers, the Jews, the Lubavitchers in Brooklyn have some of the most advanced spiritual websites, religious websites, and have for a decade or more because they're very missionaryizing, They're very proselytizing. So whether that's good or bad, it is effective in their context. So in this way, I think the Tao of Twitter shows us the great Tao flows on, and it's up to us whether we recognize that it's flowing through us right now, or we feel like it's a foreign thing, like God up in heaven, that we have to reach and get to later. The immediacy of nowness, the creativity, the juice, the enlivenment, this is the Tao of Twitter. There are many things that are said that may actually fit in 140 words, that have changed the world. Like, love thy neighbor as thyself, or some other, what we call pith instructions in Buddhism. God is within everyone. All men are created, all people are created equal. So, I try to, especially to meet the young people, because that's where young people live, be a little bit on the net although my natural inclination is more with my meditations and retreats and workshops and person-to-person spiritual teaching and uh, writing books and essays and doing in-depth interviews. But still, as I learned when I had some bestsellers and I was in TV and radio quite a bit, you can say a lot in a three-minute or five-minute interview on TV. I was on Stephen Colbert's show twice. They do six-minute author segments. Mm Mm-hmm. I got to say what I wanted to say, and it was a whole different audience. Yeah. I felt very good about that. Nice. So I think that, like any tool, technology is a tool, the new media is a tool. How we use it, where we're coming from, what our intention is, makes all the difference. We can use it wisely or foolishly. We can become addicts, or we can become adepts at it.
0: And I noticed just following you on Twitter, you're starting to do some pretty innovative things, I'd say, with Twitter. Uh, you've got this whole Ask the Llama segment that you do where people will tweet in questions and you'll sort of answer them in a blog type format. What else are you doing and what kinds of things are you finding helpful being a teacher of Dharma online?
1: That's a good question. I'm glad you appreciate that. When people ask me what I'm doing on the social network, I usually say nothing because it's my younger assistants and friends and students who are always asking me to do that and sort of it. But I'm kind of like the content provider and a little bit of the idea man. So as I get so many questions, I used to have an Ask the Lama column weekly and then monthly at BeliefNet.com, the spiritual portal. Mm-hmm. Just recently, we realized that the social network space is a good place for that and to try to foment more public discussion, which is about things I think are important, whether it's to just recommend a good book or movie or URL to go to. Today, now, or to put out something provocative or informative or interesting to help seed public discussion and further reflection, kind of to uh, help gather the community of spirits that I'd like to myself be part of, to connect the dots of all the similarly seeking people out there. And it's a beautiful community. There's a lot of people seeking in this way out there. So besides the Ask the Lama column i'm sending out words of wisdom weekly to my zogchen center you can find it at my org website i'm trying to do youtubes and streaming dharma teachings webinars and podcasts i do quite a few interviews with different teachers and celebrities i mean i used to interview people myself but now people interview me like you're interviewing me so i just let that happen Mm -hmm. I have some other ideas, but I don't want to get into that right now. But I'm thinking that there should be a way that we can meditate together online, perhaps using Skype, perhaps in real time. You know, like one day, some good advertising executive said, why do we have all these magazines ads for perfumes, but you can't smell anything? Let's make a scratch and sniff page. <laughs> well, I keep poking my technical committee, and also my nephew, who knows everything, according to him. Why do we have, like not just gong sounds coming out of the iPod now as an app, but why can't we have like the smell of incense coming out or some other sensory enhancements that help us be in the sacred space right now? And I think the immediacy and nowness of the online world could help us do that. I'm not very familiar with Second Life. I heard about it. My buddy Mitch Kapoor keeps telling me I should be there I know there's a lot of porn action there, but there's also a lot of other opportunities. (laughs) And I'm thinking, how can we get people together online to do something deeper than just exchange quips and 140-word bursts, 140-character bursts, like on Twitter, a Facebook. MySpace is better for musicians, they tell me. I don't know why that is. But I'm thinking about this. How can I get together with people who want to get together with somebody like me in the spirit and have chanting and smell and feel something and learn something and grow them deeper and more beautiful together. I think this is an opportunity here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a
1: challenge, Like I don't really know if it's good to get people more glued to their work site and their laptop. That's a question I have.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess Following up on that, I just sort of make the observation that as the Internet's evolved, it seems to be coming more and more integrated with life, more and more lifelike, I guess I would say. You know, Skype video just burst on the scene a couple years ago, and it's amazing chatting with people. We were just chatting with each other a minute ago, and you're in Massachusetts. I'm here in North Carolina. That's so much more lifelike than the telephone would, would be. And I'm wondering, do you think that trend's going to continue where things are going to become, as you're saying, more and more sensual, more and more sensory realism? And if so, does that mean that I just want to put this in a provocative way. Does that mean that sort of local sanghas in a certain way are dead?
1: No, no. Local is never dead. You know, it's like world trade doesn't mean that local uh, products, local food or local festivals or local life is dead. I doubt that virtual sex, I hate to talk about sex to a spiritual guy like you, Vincent, (laughs) but... You know, I doubt that sex is ever going to be replaced by virtual sex, and I'm not waiting for research to confirm that guess. What do you think?
0: You know what? I'm going to wait and see.
1: Okay. Well, as the Dalai Lama said, seriously, and I'm a guy who knows what the Dalai Lama says. I'm not saying I heard this on the Internet, and it may be not true. Somebody asked the Dalai Lama at a science conference if a person could be reborn as a computer, and he thought about it seriously. He's a very science-minded person. He said, why not? If a consciousness could attach to the body of a person or of an animal, which is made up of the basic elements of earth, water, air, wind, and fire, that's what a computer is made up of, more or less. is his thinking, Buddhist thinking. So why not? So I think anything's possible. I think that, yes, the virtual world, the virtual space is becoming more integrated with life. I think now it's in its infancy or young teen years, perhaps only hindsight would tell in a few hundred years, you know, but it's like the early days of TV, maybe in the fifties first it was black and white. Then there was color, you know, we're just getting the different dimensions. Like you mentioned, Skyping. I love seeing my grandnephew who's six months old in New York on Skype. This is a lot better than talk on the phone and having him say, "gaga." Right? He can't talk on the phone except make a few sounds. I can talk to him. I don't know if he's understanding. But now with Skype, people are seeing their grandchildren. I'm just using that as an example. It could be whoever. Or their pets, when they travel on business, they're tuning in across the globe. Not just from me here in Massachusetts to New York where my family of origin is, but people are seeing their family or other people or the gurus or whatever across the globe. And this is a beautiful thing. Of course, not going to replace face-to-face contact, I'm sure. I do think that there's an opportunity for drawing closer together. And on the other hand, we could blow it. You know, we could end up being like people who just stay in their cubicle or apartment all the time and live in virtual community and have no personal friends or contact order all their food delivered that way through the Internet and don't really have much FaceTime or human contact. There are some people like that, and they're welcome to live like that. I'm just saying that uh, that's not how most of us want to or are going to live and flourish. So this is an augmentation to our real life. This is part of real life. There's no point in saying that media is not real life. When I talk to my mother on the phone, it's just like being with her and seeing her. That's as real as it gets. I don't have to be there in person. I see her and she sees me even without the Skype. You know what I'm saying? So there's an opportunity here. That's what I'm saying. For spiritual teachers, for wise elders, for activists, for intelligent leaders, I like what Barack Obama's campaign did through the internet, fundraising and connecting and raising community activists and workers, volunteers through the internet. There's an opportunity here to use it for positive educational consciousness-raising purposes. If we could be mindful and reflective about it, not just always rushing for what's new, but also trying to get better and more skillful with what we already have, that would be helpful. New is not necessarily better. I think there's a lot of opportunity here for education. Think about the uh, large number of population who are or are going to be perhaps more housebound as the huge number of baby boomers that huge number in the bell curve i think it's like 80 million baby boomers going to old age and how without being able to travel as much they can do a lot more through the internet let's just talk about my field spiritually speaking beaming a streaming media and so forth shut-ins teenagers or 10 12 and 15 year olds who can't go out at night to hear a lecture, the kind of lecture I give in cities, but they can maybe do it online. So I'm doing my uh, Meta Wisdom calls free online now with my colleague Kevin Buck in California, and we do it virtually through Maestro Conference and so on. That's available at MetaWisdom.com if you want to look us up. That's another initiative. You asked about new initiatives, Vincent. So people don't always have to travel to a weekend workshop or a one-night lecture. People can do it without going anywhere. You know, all the virtues of telecommunications and the new technology. So some of the most traditional Buddhist teachers I know, not just the American Buddhist teachers who are good at this, like Genpo Roshi or Eckhart Tolle, the Dalai Lama's people, Minjur Rinpoche, people doing streaming media. Tricycle Magazine has online retreats they just started this year. We used to have online seminars. Now they're called online retreats and they're enhanced. I don't know if it's a real retreat, but it's a good effort to bring people into the retreat space online. So things are evolving in this direction, and everything is improvisational. This is a new frontier, just like Eastern thought and Buddhist dharma in the West. It's sort of a new frontier. It's improvisational. We have one foot firmly planted in the old world and tradition, and one foot firmly planted in the new. In fact, I would say I feel like I have two feet firmly planted in the old tradition and world and two feet firmly planted in the new and this feels good not schizoid in any way there's many people i never see anymore around the world who i'm in better contact with because of the uh, new media email and twitter and cell phones because i don't get to tibet or nepal or china or europe as much as i used to and some of them are gurus you know, some of the great gurus use cell phones and this technology also. So it's not just some kind of bad habit or worldly indulgence or I don't know what. You know, as we say in Buddhism, it's not that money is the root of all evil. It's not that sex or the other women are the root of all evil. Ignorance you know, not knowing what reality, that's the root of all evil. And this is just part of modern reality. Technology is a tool. That's probably the root definition of technology, tools and the better tools. Now, the question of it fracturing our attention and in, in training and ADD, and attention deficit disorder kind of generation, that's an interesting question and I think has to be entertained. Maybe we need to bring a little moderation or discipline into our online habits. Like my nephew, who's 28 years old in New York, a college graduate, a radio producer, he tells me proudly, Uncle Suri, I never read a whole book. I said, Lonnie, is that good? (laughs) How would you get through college? He says, Cliff Notes and book flaps. I said, holy crap. I was online 17 hours yesterday. I'm not missing anything. I get the news and sports and everything that way. I said, holy crap. Is that good? 17 hours online? It sounds like you're kind of a a nerd glued to the boob tube of the laptop. So I don't know. It's a new era.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question too because there seems to be, in some ways, these dichotomies that people often consider when they think of technology and maybe spiritual practice. Like one dichotomy I'm thinking of is the recognition of timelessness and the speeding up An acceleration of time in the technology world like you're mentioning. And then the other is attention, which you mentioned. There's the the unification of attention in in the Buddhist tradition. And then there's the fragmentation of attention that you're mentioning. And it seems like on the one hand, there are these dichotomies. But on the other hand, what I hear you pointing to is something that brings them together or, or some way in which those dichotomies aren't completely real. It seems like a paradox of sorts.
1: It is a paradox, and life is paradoxical, but a wise man said, and it's common knowledge, it might have been John Keats, it doesn't matter, that if we want to open and enlarge our minds, we need to be able to embrace or hold two paradoxical ideas in the mind at the same time. So it's clear to me, and it's also part of Buddhist non-dual mystical thinking, to recognize distinctions, but also see the unity in it. Like yin and yang, and then the wholeness of it, the sacred third, that is the two together. Like two people make a sacred third, that is the sacred couple, and so on. So we think so dichotomously, Vincent. The mind, the bifurcating intellect, likes to make two, and then it's easier to decide this or that, if things are good or bad. But as we know, if we think about it, if we're grown up, if we're intelligent, it's very hard to say anything's unequivocally good and bad. Life doesn't take place in the black and white areas. There's a whole spectrum in between, not just grays, a whole rainbow of colors and possibilities. I think we have to start to see that technology and many things, including oneself, is neither good nor bad. There's a lot to be learned here. And acceptance goes a long way towards transformation. Radical acceptance has its own transformative magic. So it's not really that important whether I think I'm good or bad. That's just the level of a concept there's a much deeper truth about beingness and isness that we can't really catch by trying to decide if we're good or bad or you know is milk good or bad if a baby falls into a pot of milk and drowns milk bad too much of a good thing could be bad is arsenic good or bad or nitroglycerin i think these things are used as medicines for the heart and so on because things are not just what they seem to be in the right context Things can be very different than we perceive them usually. So, I think we could learn to open our minds a little. Like in Buddhist logic, things don't just exist as they seem to. They're not non existent. They're not both existent and non existent, and they're not neither. It's not just that either everything exists or doesn't exist. So, when we start to open our mind to the both and, like things can be both good and bad. Maybe I'm ambivalent. Maybe things are ambiguous. Maybe I have a love-hate relationship with somebody or something. Our life can become much more rich. So not trying to land on one side or the other can help us to explore much deeper different levels, including intuitive levels and you know more integrated levels, not just conceptual thinking level of reality. And for this, Eastern thought, meditation, and yoga, samadhi, working on our attention, you know, spirituality is an inside job. Even if we talk about God, I'll still say it's an inside job. The Godhead, the Buddhiness is within us. Then that's the place to look, not just within me, within everyone, within everything, looking deeper. I would say that although at first I resisted the technology and sometimes I find it a distraction, you know, if I'm not a little disciplined about the email habits, the amount of time online. I'm not such a big web surfer, but, you know, it's like watching television. You can get a little lost there. There's a good thing to watch on television, but you can get a little lost if you just stay on it and lays about too long, drifting and channel surfing indefinitely. Um, you can dissipate your energy online also. But I think the online world has helped enhance my uh, writing and communications for me writing and teachings is a seamless whole and it's leverage the resource one can't go around everywhere and meet everybody but we can send out the invitation and let people know what's available and people can access it today a lot more equally and democratically and also let's look at the free aspects there's a lot of people who can access this information free who can't maybe buy books Perhaps they don't have laptops, but they can get online in libraries if they're poor in certain places or countries. There's a lot of opportunities today through this new media and new technology, and I hope the spiritual teachers will take more advantage of it and not just avoid it as if it's some kind of distraction. All kinds of spiritual teachers and masters use technology anyway. They use planes and cars and wristwatches and the surgical tools and you know, electric toothbrushes, so why not? Why not whatever the next thing is, not just the blogosphere and the Twitterosphere and the cell phone, but whatever's next, if it's useful. Not everybody has to use it. If it's useful to some, some people have a techno personality or are communicators, that's fine. Others are more contemplative, that's fine. The spiritual technologies are also technologies. Prayer and meditation and yoga, So many of these things are um, inner sciences, inner technologies, tried and true technologies, and spiritual traditions all use them. So maybe we could just think that uh, some of these things we're talking about are more like the new outer technologies. Technology has always been part of the uh, spiritual traditions.